I want to invite you to take your Bible, turn with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1300. Uh, during, during World War II, the, the U.S. military uh, needed a place where they could conduct fighter pilot training missions. They wanted it to be sort of secret. They needed somewhere that was flat and not densely populated, and they wanted somewhere kind of in the middle of the country, so they went to the cornfields of Nebraska. And uh, I just like to imagine what some of those corn farmers must have thought. So this was the early 1940s. Some of these folks were probably born in the late 1800s, and suddenly uh, they've, they've some of them had never traveled outside their county. And then suddenly, every day, they have these uh, fighter planes flying overhead doing these maneuvers. And sadly, in, in 1943 and 44, over the span of about 11 months, there were three fiery and fatal crashes. 26 airmen died. Several years ago, I saw an interview of a man who had witnessed uh, one of those tragic events. He was a young boy at the time working with his father in the field and concerning what he saw, this is what he said. He said, we could never forget what it looked like. And I, I imagine he's probably right, right? Just seeing that, the, the fiery crashes, it was forever impressed on his memory. Now, with respect to that man's experience, I want you to think about an event infinitely more fearful. Um, put yourself in the sandals of one of the Israelite children who stood at the base of Mount Sinai as God gave the Ten Commandments. It says that there was thunder and lightning, there was fire and smoke, there was a voice from heaven booming. And I imagine that some of those children as they got older might have said the same thing that that corn farmer did. We could never forget what it looked like. And yet, when you read the book of Deuteronomy... When that generation of children are now adults, and their parents and their grandparents are now dead, and it's, it's them, they are the, they're the generation who's about to enter into the promised land. I want you to listen to what God says to them. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. He says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Now, you could read that and you could say, well, God, how in the world could those people forget the things their eyes have seen? And the answer is, he goes on to say, take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So it, it's forgetting is, is not just something that slips your mind. It's when something departs from your heart. And remembering is not just a matter of recalling information or reminiscing on a past experience. It's about living in light of that truth. I, I couldn't help but notice as we were singing this morning, um, 233, Jesus, keep me near the cross. The third verse says, Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow o'er me. That's what it means to remember in a biblical sense. It means to have the shadow of the cross 
over your life and to have it scenes before your eyes. And I want us to have that in, in mind this morning as we hear what Peter has to say. So let's read in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. He says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, help us uh, not to forget, not only now, but day to day, that you would uh, bring truths to our mind, and that you would remind us by your grace of who you are, of who we are, and of what you have called us to be and to do. So Lord, would you help us to hear your word together this morning? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just first, first glance here, do you see what an important role memory plays in these seven verses Peter says in verse 1, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, verse 2, that you should remember. And he says of the false teachers in verse 5 that they deliberately overlook this fact, which is to say they willfully forget the truth. So the, the crux of his argument is don't be like those who forget. Um, don't be like those who forget what God has said. Instead, remember, live like those who remember. So I want to I try to boil that down into one big idea, and that is that God's people, don't I don't have my clicker, don't know where it is, so help me out, Greg. God's people must remember His promise and follow His command. Thank you. God's people must remember His promise and follow His command. I'm summarizing that primarily from verse 2, where Peter says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So remember the predictions and the commandment. You can see that big idea just as clearly in verse 3. You can see the opposite of it there, where he says, knowing, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So the opposite of remembering is not necessarily forgetting. The opposite of remembering is scoffing. Now, when Peter calls these people scoffers, it's not a word we typically use to describe people, but it's an important word in the Bible because according to the Old Testament, a scoffer is the worst kind of fool. Go read the book of Proverbs sometime and you'll find that not all foolish people are created equal because there are some people who are fools simply because they, they might be young, they have not yet gained enough wisdom, but they're on the way to wisdom. But then there's the kind of fool who is a scoffer. This is the kind of person who, 
who is unteachable. And that is the absolute worst thing you can be, according to the book of Proverbs, is unteachable. Because it doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old, if you're not teachable, then you are no longer open to correction. You've cut yourself off from God's wisdom. You think, I, I'm, I don't have anything else to learn. There's, there's no way for me to improve or to progress. There's no way for me to be sanctified. And so a scoffer is someone who cuts themselves off from God's wisdom. They cut themselves off from any, any thought that they might need to become more sanctified. And so instead of remembering God's promise and following His command, these people scoff at God's promise and they follow their own sinful desires. So remembering is not just a, a mental act that we do. It is an act of our will where we willfully put truth before our eyes we remember that truth and then we live according to it. We follow the Lord's command. So Peter knows that whatever objections these false teachers are raising, all of that is a smokescreen that they think will give them cover to follow their own sinful desires. At the end of the day, they don't want to acknowledge the truth because if they do, then they're going to be accountable to God for their actions. And that I just want to say that's a, an important thing to remember when you think about unbelievers that you may know, unbelievers that you may pray for, unbelievers that you may be speaking to, is that there is inherently something going on in their will where they are unable to, to want to please God. They're unable to want to trust in Him. And so um, it's not just that, man, if I just had the right argument... If I could just answer all their questions that they have, then, listen, by all means, try, right? There may be some genuine mental things that they're struggling with, but it's also possible that you could answer all their questions, that you could satisfy all their objections, but at the end of the day, they don't want to trust in Christ. They don't want to surrender to Him because that would mean that their life would have to change. And so that means that we have to pray. We have to pray, Lord, would you move in their heart? Would you change their heart? Would you give me the words to say, but Lord, you have to work. And that's what's going on here. Peter knows these people don't want to acknowledge the truth. They're, they're scoffers. They have, they have cut themselves off from God's wisdom. At the same time, though, he knows that the, the things they're saying, the objections that they are raising are confusing and even enticing some people within the church. So Peter wants to answer them so that he can stabilize those who are unsteady. So what are the scoffers saying? We've been talking about these false teachers the whole time we've been going through this book, but this is the first point when Peter finally just comes out and says plainly, here's what they say in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So these people acknowledge that God created all things, but they seem to be denying that God intervenes in the world He created. So they say, ever since the fathers fell asleep, that is to say, ever since the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ever since those fathers died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So the argument goes like this. You look over the course of history and you see generation after generation, the world just goes on as it has always been. God created it 
He sort of wound it up like a clock and then he sat it down and he stepped back and the clock's just ticking. And everything is this closed circuit. Everything is this closed system. And God does not intervene in the world He created. So if God doesn't intervene in the world He created, then He's not going to intervene by ending the world with some calamitous day of judgment of which the apostles speak. Now, there are many angles Peter could have taken here. Um, but he focuses on three things. So he just kind of boils it down to, I'm going to point you to three things that, that prove why this is wrong. Uh, those three things are creation out of nothing, the flood, and the day of judgment. So he starts with something that the teachers, these scoffers, have already seemingly admitted the beginning of creation. They say in verse 4, For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they acknowledge that there was a beginning to the world, that the world began sometime and that it was created by God. These people are not necessarily what we would call atheists. They, they believe in God. They believe in a creator. Um, and Peter's point is, okay, does that event not itself speak to God's intervention. If God had, had not spoken all things into existence, things would never have come into existence. If God had not intervened in the nothingness, there would still be nothing. He says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So, Peter is zeroing in on one particular aspect of this event of creation, that after God created all things out of nothing, He then formed that world into a livable place that was habitable for humans. So you, you see this in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's, that is Moses' way of saying God made everything, everything we can see, even the things we can't see. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then it says in verse 2, And the earth was formless and void, and there was water over the surface of the deep. So when God created the world, it was chaotic. It was not formed. It was not habitable. It was this massive void, and it was covered with water. And so God then begins to speak, Let there be light, and there was light. And suddenly this world now is flooded with light. And then He starts to separate the waters from the waters, so that there is now a sky and there are waters on the earth. And then he takes the water that's on the earth and he separates it so that there's now dry ground and there are oceans and seas and rivers and ponds and all those kind of things. So he, he, he forms the world he created into a place that we can live on. And he does that by means of water, separating the water into sky and ocean, separating the waters on the earth. And he does all that through his word. He speaks, let there be light, let the water separate. Let the waters be filled with fish and let the sky be filled with birds and that sort of thing. So he divides all this up. He does all this by his word. God speaks and creation listened. So Peter says, right, that's, that's one piece of evidence that God intervenes. Because if, if he had never done that, the world would have never existed. You and I would have never existed. We wouldn't even be having any brain cells to talk about this. Now, notice the dots that he connects in verse 6. He says, And that by means of these, that is, by means of water and the Word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So, 
creation out of nothing, and then the flood is the second example of God intervening in the world He created. And just as God spoke with His Word and He used water in the creation of the earth on which we live, He also used His Word and water to then deluge that water with that world with water and cause all things except for eight people and the animals that were on the ark and that sort of thing to perish. So God did not sit back and stay removed from the world He created. He, he saw the sinfulness of mankind and He stepped in to check that sinfulness. Now, here's, here's what I find most fascinating about Peter's argument is that he could have gone a lot of different places after that, right? He could have talked about the Exodus. I mean, that's a great example of God intervening in the world He created. He could have talked about the exile. Most importantly, he could have talked about the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the ultimate sign of God intervening in the world to rescue sinners and to judge sin. But instead, Peter wants to draw a connection between the universal destructiveness of the flood and the day of judgment. So he says in verse 7, but by the same word, so the same word that he used to create all things out of nothing and to form the world into a livable place, the same word that he used to then flood the earth with water, by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So after the flood, what did God promise? I'm not going to ever do that again. He doesn't say, I'm never going to judge the world again. I'm never going to destroy the world again. He says, I'm not ever going to do it again with water. And so what Peter says here is that God is going to do that again. It's going to be infinitely worse than that, except He's going to do it with fire. He's going to bring judgment and destruction with fire. We're going to come back to that truth next Sunday, Lord willing, that, that idea of, of what is God going to do with this new heavens and new earth. But for now, I want to circle back to what he says He's trying to accomplish on behalf of his readers. Because what I, one of the things that I just kept thinking about this week is Peter spent all this time in chapter two just hammering the destructiveness of, of this false teaching. But he comes back in chapter three and he, it's a reminder to us about to whom he's speaking. He says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. He calls these people beloved. And that's his way of saying not just that, that he loves them, but he's calling them, you are God's beloved people. You are the people of God. And he says that this is now the second letter I've written. In both of them, I'm, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder in verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So, so back to that big idea that God's people, God's beloved people must remember His promise and follow His command. The scoffers were, were denying and willfully overlooking both of those. They were, rather than trusting and affirming God's promise of a future judgment, they were denying it. And rather than living according to God's command, rather than following God's command, they were following their own sinful desires. So... God's people must remember His promise and follow His command. Now, what does Peter mean when he says there uh, in verse 2, when he speaks about the commandment of the Lord, Lord and Savior 
through your apostles. Now notice, he's referring to the whole Bible because he says the predictions of the holy prophets, Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, New Testament. So that's what he wants us to keep in mind is what we now call the Bible, the Word of God. But exactly what commandment does he have in mind? That's an odd thing to say, right? We might expect him to say, um, remember the commandments of God. Remember the, the rules, the statutes of the Lord. Instead, he says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment, singular, of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Here's what I think Peter means, that by, by using the word commandment, singular, he's referring to the whole of Christian moral teaching. In other words, all that the Bible has to say to us about what we ought to be and do as God's people. The point of, of calling this the commandment, singular, is to say that it's not just, don't just think of it as a list of, of do's and don'ts. It's about who we are as the people of God, purchased by the blood of God's Son, filled with the, the gift of God's Spirit. And of course, the Bible, when you think about all of the commandments, plural, it sort of nests all those commandments into different categories, right? So you've got all the things that God says in the whole law, and all that can be summed up in ten commandments. And then even those ten commandments can be summed up even more uh, narrowly than that, so that when, when someone comes to Jesus and says, which, which is the greatest commandment? He's able to give them an answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But here's, here's what's important, right? Love. Love God, love people. That love is then carefully defined throughout the rest of the, the New Testament. So when you hear things like that, when you hear, okay, well, I'm called to, to love God and love people, that's a helpful memory tool for your own head. But that, if that's all you ever think about what you're supposed to do, you're probably going to fall short of following the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Because Jesus told us in the Great Commission to make disciples and to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so the danger is that we would say, okay, well, I'm supposed to love God and love people. And then we just kind of live our lives and we constantly ask ourselves, okay, well, what's the most loving thing to do in this situation? You might think that's a good way to live. What's the most loving thing to do in this situation? The problem is that we all too often define what is most loving in ways that are totally unbiblical. So that's why we need the whole thing. We need the whole counsel of God to help us to define what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. We don't get to define love however we want. We're called to love in ways that Jesus commands us to. So, so this love is centered around things like truth and holiness and self-sacrifice and repentance and forgiveness and so on. So if our love, if our attempts to love God and love people fall short of those things of truth and holiness and repentance and forgiveness and self-sacrifice, then what we're doing is not fully orbed biblical Christian love. 
We're going to, Lord willing, spend some more time tonight in our small groups thinking through that and, and how just saying we, we just need to love people is not sufficient. But, but here's what I want us to see um, as, we, as we think about the ways that we might relate to someone like these scoffers. And that is that it is possible for us to affirm all the right truths while living practically as if we denied them. In other words, you, you may never deny the second coming of Christ. You may not ever say like these people, where's the promise of His coming? You may not ever, ever outwardly deny that and say, I don't really think Jesus is coming back and there's going to be a day of judgment. We're going to have to give an account. I don't believe in all that stuff. You may never say that. You may say, I believe that's going to happen. I believe Jesus is coming back. He's going to judge the living and the dead. But you may say that, but then live your life day to day as if, as if you don't believe that, right? And so the question is not only, not only do, do I affirm all the truth of God's Word, that's important, but it is does my day-to-day -day life look like someone who affirms all the truth of God's Word? Does my day-to-day -day life look like someone who is keeping that truth always before my eyes. Thankfully, God knows how forgetful we are. Uh, I would encourage you sometime, next time you're reading through the book of Deuteronomy, it's, it's really helpful because over and over and over again, God warns them, lest you forget, lest you forget. And you think, man, if I had lived to see the plagues God had done. If I had lived to stand at the base of Mount Sinai and to see the fire and the smoke, the thunder and the lightning, and to hear the voice of God, I would never ever in a million years forget that. And yet God says, be careful. Be careful lest you forget. Be careful lest you forget. And in the same way, how, how, how much would we like to say, man, I, I could never forget what God has done for me. I could never forget what God has done in my life. And yet... We need reminders, and that's why Peter says here, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I am agitating you. I am getting in your face. I am interrupting your life. So, so one way that I've come to think of it is, okay, Lord, how can I not just kind of go about my life and, and wait for that interruption to happen, but how do I pursue interruptions? What I mean is, how do I live my life in such a way that I am leaving space for God to interrupt what I'm doing, to interrupt what I'm thinking, to interrupt what I care about, and to remind me about what is actually most important? And God has given us a number of, of instruments for helping us do that, for helping His promise and His command not to depart from our hearts. And we can think about, about many of those instruments that God has given us, but one of them is the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Lord's Supper is one of the ways that God interrupts our lives and reminds us about what is most significant and most lasting. Yesterday, uh, many people, Halloween, right? But it's also Reformation Day, October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther goes and nails his 95 theses to the, to the door of uh, the, the church there in Wittenberg. And uh, as Protestants, we're, we're often quick to point out what the Lord's Supper is not. It's not the literal body and blood of Christ. It's, it's, not, it's not a sacrifice where 
uh, that we're offering to God. In fact, you know, Luther tells the story about the first time he ever uh, served Mass at, when he was still, you know, full-blown Roman Catholic and about how fearful he was. He, his hands began to shake and he had to sit the things down because he was so fearful about, about taking the body and blood of Christ into his hands and offering a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. I'm so thankful that that's not what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. But in our efforts to say what the Lord's Supper is not, let's not miss what it is. It is a powerful, God-ordained reminder to us of how God has intervened in the world to rescue sinners from the judgment that is to come. And it is an assurance to us of His love for those who are in Christ. How often we doubt His love for us, and yet when we take the bread and cup in our hands, we have a tangible and even edible reminder of God's love for those who are in Christ. It is a reminder to us that our unity is not found in anything that is passing away. It's not found in our earthly citizenship. It's not found in our political affiliations. It's not found in our economic status or even in our family relationships. Our identity is first and foremost, are we in Adam or are we in Christ? And if we're in Christ, that is where our communion rests, not in anything else but in Him. And taking the Lord's Supper does not just point our attention back to what Christ has done in the past or even to what He is doing now in the present. It also points us to the future. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Paul also warns us in that passage about eating or drinking in an unworthy manner, which is to say, if you're not a follower of Christ, it would be better for you to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper and simply to observe. And uh, anytime we have kids, parents, it's, a, it's our responsibility to, to help our kids know what is wise and to use this as, a, as an opportunity to explain the gospel to them. And so I want us to take a moment now and to do what, what Paul urges us to do there in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, let each person examine himself. So we're going to take a take moment, a moment of, of prayerful reflection, and then I'll give you instructions for, for moving forward from there. Lord Jesus, we are thankful um, for what you've done on our behalf, what we never, ever could have done for ourselves. Lord, that all of us have fallen short, all of us have failed, all of us on our own are unworthy. And uh, we don't deserve to come into the presence of God. We don't come into the Lord's presence with any confidence in ourselves, but we come because we've been invited we come because, Lord Jesus, you have made a way for us with your own body and blood. And so, Lord, as we, as we come to a time when we take the bread and the cup this morning, I pray that we would be reminded of that, 
Lord, that your love uh, for us and your invitation to us would be impressed upon us. And Lord, that we would come not in an unworthy manner, but in a worthy manner, that we would come through the righteousness of Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, we, we have some elements there in the back of the pew, but before you grab the bread, I want you to take a hymnal and turn with me to number 435. 435, just as I am. Um, the first element we take in the Lord's Supper is the bread. Hebrews 10 Verse 5 says that when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. So the body of Jesus is a reminder to us that He became flesh in order to satisfy God's righteous demands in a way that we never could on our own. So when we take the bread and hold it in our hands, it's a reminder to us that God has said a definitive no to all human efforts and all human righteousness apart from Christ. So as we're, we're going to sing the first two verses of Just As I Am, and I want to encourage you if, you, if you want to participate this morning as you do that, to take a piece of bread there from the, the pew in front of you and to hold it in your hand and to use this as an opportunity to reflect on the body of Christ that was pierced in our place that says to us that our righteousness is filthy rags before the Lord, and yet God has made a way for us to come to Him. So let's sing these first two verses together. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The second element we take is the cup. Hebrews 10 says, 
that it is impossible. Impossible. Impossible, I say, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ shed His blood for us, He sat down at God's right hand and said, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. We're going to sing the, the third and fourth verse of Just As I Am. And as we do, you can take that cup and hold it in your hands and reflect on the blood of Jesus that was shed for us, the blood that cleanses each spot. So let's sing together now. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In a moment we're going to sing the last two verses of Just As I Am. And I, I just love the invitation of this song. It's not an invitation to people who think they have it all together. In fact, uh, Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelation, you think that you, you have it all together, but I say to you that you are poor, wretched, naked, and blind. And he says, come to me, and I will give you salve to give sight to your eyes. Come to me, and I'll give you clothes to cover your nakedness and that sort of thing. So this is an invitation for us to come only because of the blood of Christ. Our, that's our only plea, is that Jesus shed His blood for us and that He bids us come. He bids those who are conflicted and those who are fearful to come to Him. He bids those who know their own poverty to come to Him, and He promises to welcome, to pardon, to cleanse, and to relieve. So will you come to Him today? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank You for Your invitation to come. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You have said to us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, Lord, I pray that there would be none within the sound of my voice this morning who would rely upon their own strength, but, Lord, that we would admit our weakness. Lord, that we would admit our spiritual poverty before you. Lord, that we are bankrupt. That we have nothing to offer you. And Lord, that we would come to you with empty hands and would cling to Jesus. Would you help us to do that today? And would you help us to hear the promise 
that everyone who comes to me I will never cast out. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you.